You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone, cover to cover. Stay with us. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness. This is... Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today's Tuesday, September the 2nd, 2008. Okay, aha, how could this Republican candidate for VP, uh, Governor Sarah Paley, how could she expose her 17-year-old daughter to the nation's (laughs) contempt She's out to lunch. She must have been, well, what was she thinking? Uh, Even Barack Obama seems to feel that there is something to deplore. Of course, he means, well, he's done the right thing. His response, however, uh, indicates (laughs) the status quo. Something wrong, something wrong with being an unwed mother. Told his people, don't touch this one. Why not, I ask you, why not send flowers? Why not throw a shower? Why not celebrate? This is life. I thought they were, (laughs) they were, (laughs) they were pro-life. Helen Caldicott says, a baby is a baby is a baby. How can any baby be illegal? It is patriarchy that has done this to women, cast them outside society made them pariahs if they don't have the sanction of the state of a male marriage. Of course, Sarah Paley and her good husband Todd have stated that their daughter plans to marry her child's father. To give the child a name, as we used to say, why does it need his name? How dare they? I like to read the law's In old Ireland, they're called the Brehan Laws, long before Christianity, back when there were no illegitimate babies. Whole clans married each other. Uh, Ah, God has blessed the old religion. Yes, give me that old-time religion, the real old religion, pre-patriarchal religion of mother right. Actually, this business... uh, with Sarah Paley and her daughter. It's brought the the business of women's lives, the issue of uh, reality. Yes, it's brought it out onto the stage, never mind the male, uh, the male pageantry. Uh, <laughs> I can't help laughing to think that there is a chance, folks, that the first woman to get to the White House might be a Republican. That would... Kept me up all night the first time women got the vote after the First World War, you know, they elected a Republican president. Anyway, social progress, 
is always measured by the position of women. That's what Marx said. That's what they all say. Uh, actually, it's true. The, uh, the position of women worldwide is pretty rough these days. Um, yes, the world's a woman. Where in hell's my saddle? Got to ride her to, yes, ride her to death. Until the advent of the birth control pill, women had no choice in the matter. Um, you know, for most women, pregnancy was inevitable. Biology truly was destiny uh, till the pill, till the 60s. You remember the first thing Hitler did was padlock those birth control clinics. Always, always women are behind the eight ball. Uh, yes, my favorite... <laughs> My favorite long poem years ago, yes, uh, was the one where uh, the guy says, you've got the baby and I've got the ball, kid. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I wanted to read you a little passage. I don't know why I found it at four o'clock this morning. I was feeling pretty depressed. It's at the end of the life of Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte was... Uh, one of the immortals, one of the great writers of the 19th century, um, a poor clergyman's daughter, but uh, definitely a literary saint. And, of course, she died of pregnancy, as did so many of her contemporaries. She had the tuberculosis, and so uh, the pregnancy was what finished her off. She had married this... Uh, curate of her father's, she said, to help her father. That was her main goal in life, was taking care of her father. He lived to be 80-something. Anyway, uh, I have some good things to say about fathers in a minute, but uh, I wanted to mention the circumstances attendant on Charlotte Bronte's funeral. There are paragraphs and paragraphs describing the people who came to pay homage. Uh, yes, they they had looked upon her as a pale white bride only a year or so before. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell in The Life of Charlotte Bronte writes, Among those humble friends who passionately grieved over the dead was a village girl that had been betrayed some little time before, but who had found a holy sister in Charlotte. Footnote here. Yes, this was a sisterhood in the early 19th century. Betrayed meant seduced and abandoned in those days. Uh, this would have been a fallen, <laughs> a fallen village girl, a woman who uh, became pregnant without benefit of clergy. Anyway, Elizabeth Gaskell goes on to write that Charlotte had sheltered her, helped her, given her counsel, uh, strengthening words, had ministered to her needs in her time of trial. That would have been the birth of the child. Bitter, bitter was the grief of this poor young woman when she heard that her friend was sick unto death. And deep is her mourning until this day. And then Elizabeth Gaskell goes on to describe other uh, young women 
having walked miles uh, to say goodbye to Charlotte Bronte there uh, at the church over the moor paths. Yes, they came to hear the last solemn words, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Such were the mourners over Charlotte Bronte's grave. Yes, I wonder what Jesus Christ would say to this casting out of another young woman. Bristol is her name. <laughs> I, I can't believe the way we twist and turn in the wind. Of, but sooner or later, we manage to find a young woman, an adolescent girl, yes, <laughs> and put the blame on her. I don't know. I looked through my big book, my favorite book. Um, it's called Women Without Superstition, No Gods, No Masters, The Collected Writings of Women Free Thinkers of the 19th and 20th Centuries. And I thought and thought about what I call, well, what the book here calls the religious battered woman. <laughs> there are so many ways to batter a woman. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what is that? Oppression. So many forms. Uh, so many forms. I think, just for fun, I'd just like to read you a little bit, uh, a little critique about uh, about Jesus, yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I think, well, now I wanted to read you a passage about uh, the need for uh, access to abortion, the right to lie movement. Uh, but mm, let me read you just a paragraph from the religious battered woman First, uh, this is by Annie Nicole Gaylor, the editor of this big book, the book that I use for my Bible. She writes, at long last, the cause of the battered woman has become fashionable. There has been a spate of articles, a book or two, a movie. <laughs> Sally Struthers gets roughed up. Even the male-dominated wire services in the United States recognize that, yes, there is a problem. Uh, and it goes on to talk about the myth of women's, uh, what is that? I guess women's masochism, their wish to, um, uh, to be beaten, to like to be hurt, abandoned, and, uh, it is the word, uh, I would say dramatized. I was thinking, trying as hard as I could to imagine what this young 17-year-old Bristol is feeling. Surely she is deeply uh, humiliated to know that um, you are a threat to your mother's professional career, um, to feel all of that. I thought carefully last night that mother, Sarah, has a baby four months old and uh, daughter Bristol is five months pregnant. Perhaps daughter 
was uh, imitating, uh, copying her mother's behavior. Uh, if I were in the mood to blame, which I usually am, I would look to the mother's uh, romantic notion that having a uh, late late pregnancy and a Down syndrome child was a uh, a good thing to do, a holy thing to do. Uh, oh dear, I can't imagine what she was thinking. We're going to hear so much more about this, folks. Uh, I don't think there's any point in taking sides. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any way out of this one. It's a trap. Uh, no matter what women do, they twist and turn in the wind. Uh, I think I need to read you something uh, from The Skeptical Feminist by Barbara G. Walker. I guess Barbara is the ultimate in uh, a reasonable approach to this sort of thing. I'll save the the pieces on our need for uh, free and uh, uh, healthy, careful abortion for later. Uh, Barbara Walker is the one who wrote the Free Thought Encyclopedia, the Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, back in the 80s. Her goal was to trace the transition from the female-oriented to the male-oriented religions in Western civilization. She's the woman who wrote the great books, The Crone, Woman of Age, Wisdom and Power, The I Ching of the Goddess, The Skeptical Feminist, Discovering Virgin Mother and Crone, and Women's Rituals, a source book. Um, she used the archetypal goddess image as a kind of psychological tool. Uh, I'm always getting notes and letters, usually from guys who find this goddess talk offensive, and I try to say that it is a metaphor. <laughs> like everything, it is a metaphor. Uh, I don't, of course, uh, believe in the supernatural any more than Barbara Walker does. But she understands the psychological power of these images. Uh, she debunks all of the fortune-telling and the crystals and the New Age assertions about uh, this and that, you know. <laughs> but uh, she is, what is that? Uh, she is a student of human nature. She says that God is a human projection of the image of man. So while we're at it, I suppose we might just as well trade the father and the son for the mother and the daughter, just as the ancient people did. Uh, what she tries to point out, what uh, all of the women in this book point out, especially Elizabeth Cady Stanton when she writes the woman's Bible, is that the invention of the Christian hell was the most sadistic fantasy ever to masquerade as fact. Anyway, I, I kind of like what she says. Uh, she says that it was her father who taught her, yes, that uh, <laughs> God was not such a very good idea. Mm -hmm. I had the same... Uh, I had the same experience. Uh, my father was a physician, a doctor, and uh, his favorite, his favorite amusement was to tease the local priest. <laughs> yes, he was a, 
uh, kind of a, yes, kind of a mean guy. He liked to point out that uh, the priest was uh, enjoying his role as hand uh, hand holder to the girls in the confessional. Anyway, I want to read to you from the skeptical feminist. It's a speech that Barbara Walker gave many, many years ago. She says, I turned towards skepticism at a very early age in my childhood when my beloved dog died. A few weeks later, the minister dropped in to visit my mother. I asked him what it would be like when I met my dog again in heaven, and he told me I would not meet my dog in heaven because dogs don't have souls, and so they don't go to heaven. <laughs> At this, I was heartbroken, crushed. I tried to negotiate. He said I would meet all my loved ones in heaven. Now, I said I was perfectly willing to trade a couple of aunts and uncles for my dog, but he was adamant. I could not move him. Eventually, although I was a rather quiet child, I threw a tantrum and stamped my foot, saying, I don't want anything to do with your rotten old God and your nasty old heaven. I ran to my bedroom weeping. My mother was mortified. It was a terrible occasion. This was actually the first time that I began to doubt, began to think that maybe what I had been told about God, that he was a kind, gentle God, was perhaps not true. When I entered Sunday school, the first thing I saw uh, was a life-sized crucifixion scene with a lot of agony and twisted muscles. It was horrible. I was told that God had decreed that this had to be done to his son, his dearly beloved son. I thought perhaps that must have been why Jesus ran away from heaven, because if I had a father that wanted to do that to me, I would certainly run away. Then we children were taught that not only was this poor man tortured on the cross, but we had to become cannibals and eat him. His flesh and blood were magically transposed into bread and wine. Nevertheless, we were assured it was flesh and blood. I began to think in my childish way that the God who decreed all this must be some kind of a lunatic. <laughs> when I got to my teens, I saw uh, that uh, the... Uh, the book was very subversive, the Bible. Uh, it gave God a very nasty character. It was from the Bible I learned that God did not like people very much. He called them his children, but he frequently repented. <laughs> he destroyed whole populations, set one tribe against another, fomented ruthless wars with casualties in the hundreds of thousands. And this was the same God who said, Thou shalt not kill. Uh, it was very difficult for me to understand all this because he forbade any show of mercy. He reveled in the murders of, uh, I quote, First uh, Samuel, man and woman, infant and suckling ox and sheep, camel and ass, kill them all, right? It was the mention of the animals that really got to me. <laughs> he was not even kind to his chosen people. Here's my favorite. Uh, he threatened them with the most colorful set of curses imaginable. He threatened mankind with pestilence, corruption, fever, inflammation, extreme burning, blasting, mildew, hemorrhoids, the botch, the scab, the itch, madness, blindness, slavery, plague, and barren lands. Seemed like overkill. God particularly disliked women. 
He hit women where they live by making motherhood a curse. <laughs> Giving men permission to lord it over them. And here she quotes all the passages from uh, <laughs> Ecclesiastes. Yes. I realized that when I grew up, I would be one of this accursed sex. So I began to look upon the Christian God with extreme distrust. It made me very uneasy to learn, for example, that God commanded any girl found not to be a virgin on her wedding night, well, she must be stoned to death by the men of her village. However, no such punishment was meted out to the promiscuous bridegroom, so I wondered if unmarried women remained virginal on pain of death, and if married women were also off-limits, well, who was left for the promiscuous young men to be promiscuous with? Some kind of failure of communication there. Eventually, I came to realize there's a strong element of woman hatred in patriarchal religions. But there is also some form of hatred of human beings in general. <laughs> I remember once... Said my favorite quote from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote, uh, he said, oh, well, men are just men, but mankind is a woman. Let's face it, uh, we are the same species. I used to ask my students sometimes if they thought women could be their fellow men. They would usually shake their heads and say, no, it didn't sound quite right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what it takes to turn women into your fellow man. I had a picture, I remember. There's a very famous picture of a slave uh, in chains, and it appears to be a man. And I redid the poster. I turned it into a woman, and I put the caption underneath it uh, saying, Am I not a man and a mother? And, of course, I used the old 8th century English to prove to the children that man, M-A-N-N, could be either a male or a female adult, and that uh, the picture uh, of the female could make it a mother. But they just wouldn't swallow it. Uh, <laughs> it was too great a leap for them. Anyway, anyway, the faith in God, writes Barbara Walker, Faith in God implies a lack of faith in humanity. She says that the profoundly cynical premise of religionists is that people are not capable of behaving decently toward one another unless they are lured with promises of pie in the sky when they die, unless they are terrorized by threats of extreme nastiness in the eternal afterlife in hell. This process, she said, begins in childhood. And it is known as putting the fear of God into children. This is usually a euphemism for harsh punishment. Every psychologist knows that childhood fears eventually become adult cruelties and dysfunctions. Being forced into unnecessary fear is not really the best path to mental health. On the contrary, the very fears and guilts imposed by religious training are responsible for some of history's most brutal wars, crusades, pogroms, persecutions. In 
including five centuries of almost unimaginable terrorism under Europe's Inquisition and the unthinkably sadistic legal murder of nearly nine million women. These women were demonized, as you remember, and they were called <laughs> witches. Some of them, actually, some of the witches were even men. Uh, let's see. She goes on to talk about modern religionists uh, and how they get around their legacy of violence and sexism. Uh, they, uh, she says, uh, they lie. <laughs> they do not tell the truth. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, they don't use God as, uh, what is that, uh, a mother, a lover, uh, what I would call the the comforting God that we all look for. Uh, I always think of it as going home, going home to mother. Uh, they see God as the punishing father. Now, we know all this psychological stuff. We've all heard it all our lives. Uh, but uh, the thing that I find most interesting is that people are willing to buy these, uh, what do we call them, these, these myths, these fantasies, these uh, dreams. They make us feel good. Uh, and, of course, they promise us wealth. Um, Barbara Walker says, it's so curious Human beings are more willing to believe what doesn't make sense than to believe what does. We all know this is because it makes us feel good. Uh, and then she goes on uh, for many paragraphs about Barnum and Bailey. <laughs> yes, Barnum and... Yes, the, the, uh, the notion that a sucker is born every minute and how religion is a flim-flam... Uh, she basically says we might as well make Mother Earth our Messiah if we've got to have some kind of God. Uh, at least the goddess is a symbol that uh, we can live with. It makes life possible. It is the uh, source of life, the gynomorphic personification. And she goes on to explain that's what uh, feminism is, the imminent mother rather than the transcendent father, uh, C. George Lakoff, uh, he explains this spirituality. Feminists, she says, are not anti-men. The feminist message is that patriarchy hurts men too. Our world is violent for the very reason that it's full of men who have been so wounded by oppressive father figures, both real and imaginary. And this can be changed by bringing us all down to earth in the practice of an enlightened humanism, one that recognizes our physiological needs and takes sensible precautions for the preservation of Mother Earth and for our species. And then she goes on to talk about uh, why skepticism is not a vice, but uh, the path to enlightenment. Uh, Barbara Walker is about my age, and... Uh, I, I think when I discovered her, I discovered, uh, what is it called, uh, the, uh, the truth 
the truth underneath it all, uh, the truth behind the religion that we have been handed. Uh, it was, of course, directly stolen. The Christian uh, religion was directly stolen from the women. Uh, every symbol and every image, if you take it back far enough, uh, that red carpet, for example, think for a minute what a red carpet is really. Uh, everyone will shudder and say they don't want to talk about menstrual blood, but uh, the holy water is, of course, the amniotic fluid. All of it is uh, gynecological imagery. So hard to admit. I hope that uh, Bristol won't be offended. I'm going to send her a present for the baby uh, and hope that most Americans can celebrate this young adolescence uh, coming blessed event. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys There's your picture Drop the shadow. Forty years ago, an enormous wave of protest movements from Paris to Mexico City, Prague to Karachi, shook the globe. KPFA celebrates the year 1968, looking back at that watershed moment for the left and looking forward to a future in which the lessons of that year are passed down to a younger generation of radicals. On KPFA's website, insurrection68.org, you can find unique audio and images from that 